Hi, everyone. I'm David Allen Lambert, and welcome to our latest episode of Virtual Historians. I'm here with Terry O'Connell and a very special guest. And I'm going to let Terry introduce our guest, who I'm sure you know. Well, I'm just very excited to have Megan Smolniak with us. She is probably the one genealogist that I've always like kind of fangirled over. So <laughs> it's always exciting to get to talk to her. <laughs> oh, I fanboy over her. Well, maybe that's <laughs> If you could see me, I'm blushing. <laughs> oh, Megan, it's so wonderful to hear your voice. I miss seeing you at conferences and around. I mean, I, I was trying to think the other day when the last time I may have seen you in a conference, it may have been the one that was in Vegas. Oh, I don't know. It's been a while. It's been That's a while. That's when I saw her. That's the only one I've seen her at. But <laughs> Well, if anybody has ever met Megan, understand how amazing and uh, her personality is great. As far as I'm concerned, you are the godmother of DNA research. Uh, uh. <laughs> I have your book still from long ago. It was, yeah, early one. Yes. How many years ago was that published now? Do you know that book was published in 2004? We wrote it in 2003 and I had to discipline myself. I wanted to write it like 2001, but I knew the market wasn't ready for it yet. Uh, but you know, the thing is still in all these years later, which really surprised me with that topic. When I was at the uh, Deseret Bookshop in Salt Lake City, Utah, just a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. They had their stand and they didn't have a lot of books, but there was your book on the book stand. And I was they, like, hey, I know her. They had the Who Do You Think You Are book. Yeah, oh, that was yeah. sweet. That was nice to see that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think a lot of us take DNA for granted, but it was always um, something that we wondered about back in the 80s and the 90s, never even really gave it much thought that we could ever find out in a quick way of what our ancestry or heritage could be by a spit test. <clears throat> I can still remember when it was blood tests when we did oh, it. This is taking you way back, but Sorenson Molecular um, Genealogy Foundation, they used to use blood tests and they had to find a non-invasive way to get it because their database was getting lopsided because apparently mm -hmm. a lot of gentlemen are afraid of needles or disproportionately. So it was getting heavily female. And that's why, if you remember, oh, this is talking about the dark ages. They went to mouthwash for a while. They did remember, remember that. that. Yeah, yeah. We're taking everybody on a path into the past of genealogy, <laughs> especially <laughs> genetic genealogy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I remember when Sorensen was at NEHS, where I think I was only working there about uh, 13 years, was FGS 2006. And they were set up in our rotunda, taking the first test. It was through the mouthwash one, and I was like, I'm like, I remember signing up for was it relative genetics? Yeah, yeah, that's that's who wound up with their database eventually. I mean, I know that that was a debated thing for a uh, while. Some of it because remember they had Y and mitochondrial, which ancestry kind of sidestepped. So unfortunately, mm -hmm. it has been lost. Oh, yeah, I know. Ouch. Yeah, I used to love the printouts from a couple of them, but the sad thing is we can't get that information back. No. Well, besides DNA, mm -hmm. obviously what you've done with DNA and what you've done for the families of veterans is the real reason that we're happy on today as mm -hmm. we approach the 80th commemoration of Pearl Harbor. December 7th, 1941, I think that, that date doesn't resonate some memory in your mind as a historian or an American that is the 80th 
anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, morning of that Sunday, December 7th. And a lot of news has been on um, about finding remains of the unknown in the punch bowl. And over the past, I, I don't know, Megan, I know that you haven't been directly involved with the Pearl Harbor, but just kind of a right. segue. For about the past decade, they've been maybe starting to identify the unknowns from the Oklahoma. The Oklahoma is a fairly recent initiative. I want to say that's only the past three, four years, something like that, maybe five, something like that. Yeah, because it was a long time before they decided to do, let's say, collections like that, where they, there was debate about they're essentially already, they've been put to rest. Do we take this next step? And then it was, you know, matter what the family wanted and that kind of thing. And so they finally made the decision to, to do all the cases there. So, right. and they should have a very high identification rate on, on that project because essentially they know who's there, you know? Right. So. You know, it, it's amazing when you think of all the unknowns. I mean, and then we kind of fast forward to the tomb of the unknown soldier who mm-hmm. technically would not be unknown now. I mean, because of the technology with the DNA, I mean, I know that they probably wouldn't do it, but I would think that even for what they, I read what remains they did find over in France at the time, that they probably could identify who he is now, or at least a near relative, correct? Two of the cases I've worked on over the years have been people who were regarded as unknowns who have mm-hmm. who were identified. But that's just two out of all the cases I've done. So how many cases have you done? I am creeping up on sixteen hundred. Wow. Yeah. That's more than a regiment. That's almost like two <laughs> regiments. We're going to call it the Megan Battalion. Well, I've been at it for a while. So, uh, and I mean, in fact, it's the work with the Army that got me into DNA in the first place. I've been doing right. it since, technically, I've been doing it since the last century. I've been doing it since 99. Really? Can you bring us back to that first year that you were doing it and how you got involved and uh, the reaction? <laughs> I, I still love that photograph of you receiving the flag. Um, oh, yeah, that was my first oh, identification. Powerful yeah. photograph. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of serendipitous that I got involved. I, I lived in the D.C. area at the time, and I was on a book tour for my very first book. And mm-hmm. I was just speaking at a local bookstore, and uh, a woman came to the talk who turned out to be the colonel, who was in charge of the Army's portion of this initiative. And it was early days. They were still kind of figuring things out. And so what they had decided to do was try on a bunch of genealogists for size for about a year and see how it went. And that's what they did. And at the end of the year, two of us were given contracts and I've been doing it ever since then. So it's a matter of right place, right time. But I also happen to be an army brat. So I feel like I'm the right person as well. I'm very happy to get to do this because it it means the world to me. And in terms of what you were just talking about, that photograph, that was Mm -hmm. the very first one of my soldiers to be identified he was korean war soldier and he was the first actually from the korean war who had been identified in decades and i went to his his memorial at arlington national and much to my surprise i was the only one not associated cemetery who showed up really yeah well this was early days people now you know i still i still can a number of memorial services and now you get large crowds it makes the media and the it's usually kind of a big deal, but back then nobody knew about it, right? So 
I was asked by the people performing the ceremony if I would receive the flag for the purposes of the ceremony, which I, of course, did. And, and immediately I want to make it clear, handed it back so it would be sent to the family, you know. Okay. But I, you know, I was, it was a real privilege to stand in for him. Well, you know, it's, it's tremendous because being a child of a veteran myself, and if my dad hadn't come home from the mm -hmm. war, well, if he hadn't come home from the war, my dad was in World War II, I would have been born. But in the context of, say, Vietnam, mm -hmm. to give that closure to people, I mean, I, I can't even comprehend how it must be for the person to make that aha moment like you've done for 1600, you know, and for the families to finally know dad's home or you know, the well, brother's home. I have done 1600 cases. I don't know how many of them have been identified. It's sure. a, a long process. And more and more, it's picked up speed for a variety of reasons, one of which is just the technology keeps getting better, you know. But yeah, it's personal to me because my dad did serve in Vietnam. And I, I was a little kid, but I remember crossing the days off the calendar. Uh, I have a letter that I wrote to him saying, Dear Daddy, which side is winning? Stacy, my sister, got, got new knee socks. So those two were equally important <laughs> to awesome. me at the time. So I remember it, you know, very well. And I was lucky he came home. And these people, you know, not only did they lose a loved one, but they've been left wondering for decades what became of them. For Vietnam, I mean, I, even true with World War II and Korea, maybe not so much, but they're still finding crash sites and they're finding, a, you know, some fragments of bone or some yeah. human remains of some sort yeah. that I think, you know, if they had been found 25 years ago, that would just be unknown. But there's hope now through efforts that you're doing and others, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, just to give you some sense, there's still about 82,000 missing across all the conflicts. There were relatively few from Vietnam and Southeast Asia. We did a lot of those cases early on. And initially, we began with Korea, which had about 8,000. Of those, we managed to get DNA reference samples from over 90% of the, the soldiers. So for example, when that's those 52 sets of remains, I think it was 52 sets of remains were returned a, a couple of years back, I expected some fairly rapid identifications because I knew we already had the DNA samples, you know, it was essentially a DNA bank. Mm -hmm. Initially, there wasn't too much in the way of World War II, and World War I is still just an exceptional thing. I only get to do a World War I case from time to time. That's usually like when you read a story about a French farmer plowing a field and finding something or that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. But they get identified. Some of the ones from, I've been to services for soldiers from World War One, but the majority who are missing still are from World War Two. That's about, I'm gonna say like 85, 90% of the 82,000 I told you. And most of those, about three quarters of those are from like the Indo-Pacific area. Yeah, and I was then, gonna ask if it was Europe or in the- yeah. And a good chunk of them, about half of them were lost at sea, which makes it more challenging, although there's starting to be recoveries, you know, from, from the ocean as well. So, yes. you know, the, the DNA keeps advancing, the isotopic testing, the different means they have of identifications and the recoveries for the excavations and technology they can use for the excavations. Well, everything just keeps improving. Um, so, you know, better and better and better. And the, you know, the resolution rates are getting 
quicker now than they used to be. Sure. I mean, I, I can just remember the cost of DNA when uh, Decode Me Relative mm. Genetics and oh, yeah. Navigenics came mm -hmm. out. It was like $1,000 for it a was for autosomal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was for autosomal. I have to tell you, though, for the repatriation efforts, the DNA is a little bit different. In the early days, they only used mitochondrial. The reason that when you're dealing with degraded remains, it's a little bit different than what uh, genealogists do. Mitochondrial DNA is more plentiful, and so it's it's more resilient in a sense. It was easier to secure enough to amplify and, and test. Then finally, I'm going to say 2009-ish, they started to be able to use Y-DNA for it, which of mm -hmm. course is more precise. And of course, they would try to do both, right? That's a nice right. double verification. And then I'm going to say it's about five or six years ago, they started using autosomal, but it's, again, it's not the way genealogists do it. Right now, uh, because we're dealing with bigger remains, you have to have fairly close relatives. You're mostly hoping for cases where the soldiers did live long enough to have children or if they still have siblings alive, that kind of thing. You're hoping for really close relatives. I assume like everything else, you know, that will start stretching as well and they'll be able to do it with you know, relatives were more and more distantly related the way we can when we're, you know, just looking for our cousins. I, I think about World War One being so long ago, but I remember um, was in recent years, they brought up the Hunley, the Confederate submarine, and they knew who was on it. But did they use DNA to determine who each one you of know, the skeletal remains were? I, I saw a documentary on that, and unfortunately, they did do the DNA, but um, somebody messed up and they did DNA on a step relative. I worked oh. on the USS Monitor. I don't understand, from all the research I did, I don't understand why there hasn't been at least one identification announced. There still hasn't been. Wow. But I, from all the data, and not just the DNA, we're talking all, all the information. Right. Mm -hmm. By process of elimination, they should have been able to identify one of the two skeletons. I don't know why that hasn't happened at this point, but I keep on waiting for it. Because <laughs> I know, I you know, I know that relatives from around the world, literally DNA tested. And you could tell, you know, from the information, I dug up all their records. And so, you know, who was how tall and you knew different facets, like they could do the, the testing where they could tell, like the isotope testing, which helps you determine where they grew up, right? Because mm -hmm. of the water ingested it, it, it's into your um, teeth. And I want to say, Oh, like six of the candidates were European born. So they should have been able to say, oh, this is a Danish guy or this, you know, so different wow. ways they should have been able to identify one. I keep on, I'm assuming that's still a work in process. I keep on uh, waiting to hear. So, Well, you know, it's funny you talk about remains and of course, with the, I mean, going way back when, when we were fighting with stone knives, the fellow found in the Alps I'm still waiting mm -hmm. for his descendants to be found. I mean, there's got to be some living descendants of him kicking around, I would think. It's like Cheddar Man that they found in the yeah, cave. Yeah, they keep on doing that. It must be very strange if all of a sudden you're on TV because you're related to somebody who lived several thousand years ago. <laughs> well, I mean, do you remember when the DNA, I mean, obviously, of course you, when, when it first came out, they had some fella in Florida who was, you know, he had the same Y DNA as Genghis Khan. And that's like, well, oh, yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> it doesn't mean it's his descendant. <laughs> no, no, and they messed it up. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, in the early days, 
you know, some of the TV shows and so forth, they took liberties. They would say people were cousins just because they had the same half the group, you know, either maternal or paternal half the yeah. group and that kind of stuff. I'm glad we finally graduated from that. <laughs> but yeah, but it didn't take much to, you know, get a lot of attention. So I think people would uh, embellish their claims, let's say. <laughs> well, I, I remember when the, the when Brian Sykes came out with the seven daughters of evil, I'm like, I yeah. think there's probably more than seven. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. What are we at now? 30, 40? Um, you know, but, but, you know, thank goodness he did that because he brought yeah. a lot of attention to the field, you know? So, yeah, you know, it, I mean, for the longest time, like I remember since I started doing DNA early, it took me, I was already established speaker and writer, but it took mm -hmm. me two full years to get anybody to accept a lecture on genetic genealogy or an article. Yeah, two full years. Wow. Just like asking everybody, come on, come on. No, it's like everybody was very resistant. People who are new to it, first off, it's strange how many people think it's only been around for like 10 years. No, it's, it's over two decades old. But people who are newer to it also forget how much resistance there was to it initially i mean i got a lot of pushback in the early days i think a lot of people thought that you know oh this is going to replace traditional genealogy it's like no 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 the two play really well together you know mm -hmm. you can go further faster with both of them yeah. um and, and you know sometimes you can solve a mystery with dna that you can't with the traditional research and sometimes vice versa it just depends but usually you want them in conjunction but there was just so much pushback in the early days i'm trying to think don divine was another fairly early one and christine rhodes those are the oh first. christine gosh yeah, yeah 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 those are the first sort of fellow professionals i remember actually venturing out there saying hey guys really there's something here we should pay attention to it Oh. Well, you know, I remembered writing an article for American Ancestors magazine. Gosh, it could have been New England Ancestors magazine that far back. And it was comparing the three to code me Navigenics and mm -hmm. uh, 23andMe mm -hmm. uh, on the health statistics, you know, and say what you got for each one. And back then, of course, it was a thousand dollars. Yeah. And I remember my family saying, they're going to clone you, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, and I'm like yeah. really? I said, that's great because I already had one clone, my child. So I thought, <laughs> yeah, an extra one could cut my lawn, go to work for me. I'm like, this is great. So I've been tested with every company now. So yeah. I'm waiting for a busload of David Lambert's to show up in Boston yeah. and just give me the week off, you know? Because <laughs> so. your Icelandic version. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was the same thing because, you know, speaking about it and, and writing about it, I had to get tested for every company, although I often use my father or my husband as my guinea pigs because in the early days, some of them you needed a Y chromosome for, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, I had to, yes, and I remember, I remember 23andMe and Decode Me launching within 24 hours of each other, so boom, there was $2,000 right there, mm -hmm. you know. And you weren't finding your cousins because there were only like 12 other people testing. <laughs> and now you can get those same tests in a breakfast cereal now as a prize. Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. And, and guess what? You can find your cousins really fast because so many people have done it. You know, we, we all knew it was a matter of waiting for the databases to grow, you know. But it was also really fun to have the opportunity to be a pioneer, you know. You don't get uh, the opportunities, so truly are a pioneer and I, I think that we're all the better for the efforts that you really kind of laid forth I mean with your book and lecturing and all that I mean we wouldn't have you know the CCs and the Blaines in the world if there weren't people like you Megan that actually did this so 
thank you. I mean, that's it's tremendous. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm you know I'm I'm one of the early adapters for sure. But there, you know, I had plenty of company. You know, so mm-hmm. so I mean, I remember like the the earliest get-togethers were most of the FT DNA uh, Family Tree DNA conferences, and that's actually how ISOG started because Catherine Hope Borges was at one of them, and I spoke, oh, okay. and I said, you know what? Outside of this room, like everybody's hardcore genetic genealogist, but outside of this room, nobody's heard of this, and that's what inspired her, you know, to start getting the word out. No. Well, you know, if it wasn't for YDNA on my Lamberts that came from Ireland, mm-hmm. I'd really not have much. I know he arrived in 1792 to Nova Scotia and oh, wow. with a broke Lambert and Lampert sound about the same when we were Lamperts before we were Lamberts. Mm-hmm. I, I get a match at 100 out of 111 markers with a guy named Jim Lambert, who's probably listening. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. His family came over 90 years after mine. And the only thing that and we don't know where we came from, but I know where his family came from in the north. And the idea 11 mismatches is about 500 years. <laughs> it means I don't have a paternity issue for a few centuries, <laughs> which yeah, is kind yeah. of nice. We're still out there all these years later, still waiting for a match. We're, I think we're just a random little branch off of the world's family tree. <laughs> we're just very rare, apparently. <laughs> No, no, just unique, very unique. <laughs> well, he's yeah. been tested at every place. I keep on waiting for a match to pop up. I mean, a match that I don't already know about. You know, kind of yeah, exactly. Don't you love it? Yet. It's like your cousin that shows up. I'm like, oh, I know who that is. Yeah. You know, yeah. Exactly. And then you try to use initials and I call them on the phone. I'm like, hey, I see you tested with Ancestry. I'm like, how do you know? And I said, because your tree showed up on my screen. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm going to go back to the early days, too. You mentioned 23andMe. I was actually 23andMe's first family surprise. In fact, really? I, I had to explain to them how I figured it out. What happened is I was one of their beta testers. Mm-hmm. And back then, speaking so much about it, writing, I tested the tester without telling them. And I created a little experiment. They gave me a subsidized rate since I was a, a beta tester. And I accidentally, through my experiment, wound up discovering that my father's only brother was really his half-brother. And it was, and I had accidentally just, I just tested the right combination of people to to piece that together. And so I had to figure that out. And then I explained to them and they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, how do our stuff show you that? And I was like, okay, I had to walk them through. And I remember in the early years, they used to use that kind of as a case study to explain to people that, hey, you could get a surprise here, you know, but it was kind of strange because, you know, I'd been doing genealogy forever by then already. And I had no inkling, no inkling that my dad's brother was only his half brother. Well, you know, I had the same story in my family. It was a story and my cousins didn't believe me. My dad said to me that his siblings or male siblings were all half siblings. And I'm like, all right, well, dad's gone. He died in 99. My uncles and aunts are all gone. I said, well, the cousins aren't. So when I tested them and they came up as half cousins, I'm like, see, and then we had one half brother alive. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to do your Y DNA. And I did it through FTDNA mm-hmm. and he matches with the man that my grandmother had the children with mm-hmm. uh, same last name. And sure enough, my Lamberts are lowly Irish, which are, you know, my near and dear to my heart. My grandmother's relationship with this other person, he has a Mayflower line. Oh, <laughs> it's like, why? I can't get one. But so I can relate. <laughs> Speaking of that, congratulations on your good friend Joe at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeah, That's, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased for all of us. He's a good man. 
and he's, he's been very kind to me. He's a very good man, and I, I always remember seeing the pictures of you and pictures with Obama. I'm thinking to myself, what a lucky lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, do you know, with, with Joe Biden, I, I did his roots, and that didn't get nearly as much attention, but he knew about it. And you know how you always hear how he does those strange calls. I was just in my office one Friday afternoon. The phone rang, and it was him. <laughs> this is when he was vice president. He said, uh, "This is Joe Biden, vice president." He took the time to explain who he was. And then um, after that, he started inviting me to a St. Patty's Day uh, breakfast each year. So uh, that's excellent. Yeah, that's- yeah. So it's it's really fun. It's all these um, muckety mucks and you know people like me and his veterinarian. You know. Well, that's okay. That's okay. No, has he done his DNA? He must have, because you found relatives, I believe. No, I, you don't need to, I mean, I did a lot of digging on his roots, a lot of digging on his roots, but I don't know that he's DNA tested, and I wouldn't especially suggest that he do it, since he's got such yeah. a profile, you know. I know there's one branch of his iris that I was able to verify it through DNA, just mm-hmm. through, you know, distant relatives of his who had tested, I could kind of, you know, piece it together. But for somebody with a high profile I, I i would think they might be a little more cautious yes about jumping into the you know because that whole conspiracy theory on cloning will just come to the surface uh, <laughs> just, i just think you know err on the side of caution that's all. oh absolutely absolutely yeah so all right we're going to look at the looking glass here of technology hmm. where do you see the field going oh geez and we're really at the tip of the iceberg, I've always thought. I like to say that we should all freeze our DNA samples and leave it for future generations to unravel even more. Because I always think of how many times there are kits that are out there that, you know, like, oh, well, we have one or two more samples left that we can run before they need to get another sample, like with FTDNA. I often think there should be like a DNA cryogenic bank we can leave for <laughs> independence. Yeah, I'll tell you. One thing I would like to just it's be made become easier is <clears throat> excuse me extraction for average Joes. You know, it we keep on getting sort of teased about oh it's going to be so easy to get it from stamps or you know oh yeah you know, whatever and of course you it is you know in certain environments for um, criminal research and that kind of thing. But for average Joes, I, you know, I, I'd like to just see some retail operations with affordable places that we can all just kind of go through whatever we might have from our ancestors who are no longer with us and, and get them tested so that we can, you know, test that great, great grandparent or whatever, if you happen to have some possessions, you know, well, that's you're true. A cap right now, what if there was a cap you've got? Like I've got, I have my grandfather's World War One cap. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, of course, it's been handled, so that's not great. But what if I could test a few people who have touched it, eliminate them, and mm-hmm. see what's left? You know, things like that. Yeah, that's like I have the leather sweatband on the helmet that belonged to my wife's great grandfather. I'm sure there's probably something soaked into the leather. You know, it, it's yeah, hard. Yeah. It's hard to know, and and it is true. There, there's just not a lot. I mean, unlike autosomal DNA, where you can get a lot of different testing companies out there, so the prices, you know, get mm-hmm. down in price. Really, I mean. Um, Family tree DNA is really for Y DNA and mitochondrial. It's really the best show in town, and really one of the. I mean, I, I know that um, twenty and three and me gives you predicted, but not to the detail yeah. of family tree DNA. Yeah, does. I kind of, I kind of mourn what I see as sort of a loss. You know, once autosomal came to the fore, 
those two are kind of back burner, but they're really powerful depending on what you're oh, doing, yeah. you know, especially for history mysteries, depending on what you're doing. You know, obviously the best thing is to have all three, especially if you're done with the male or have mitochondrial and the autosomal with the female. I wish that were also more readily available. It's, it's funny. It is coming back. And it's interesting to me because, you know, from the early days, first it was Y-DNA, then it was mitochondrial for those of us just doing it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And now those who are fairly new to it have been doing autosomal and that's all they know. And then now they think Y and mitochondrial are the new things. And it's like, no, no, these are the parents of the other ones. <laughs> the other ones have been around forever. But it, now it's starting to feel newfangled. But however it happens, it's a good thing because the more people doing all the different types of tests, the better. But yeah, for solving particular mysteries, like with my dad, I'm still waiting for that Y match. He's got plenty of cousins, but I'm waiting for that Y match. You know? I'm waiting for people across the pond. I mean, you've, I mean, having both having Irish heritage, like we both mm -hmm. do, it's like getting people that are over in the UK or in Ireland to actually test that we could get a match, you know, shy of getting that request that I get occasionally at the reference desk. And you'll love this and probably have heard this before. People want to know if it's legal to make a request to dig up their great, great grandparent to get, oh, yeah, I'm like, uh, yeah, but is it ethical? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it's not a crime. It's like when they, you know, are trying to figure out if what Zachary Taylor was poisoned or William Henry Harrison or yeah. was it one, of the, one of the two of them. They had to exhume the remains. I mean, to do it just for the fanciful idea that you want to find out what your great 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 grandmother's mitochondrial line might be. Yeah, no, I think it's fair game for say, you know, a documentary, but even then I'm really fussy. Like I, I gave you the example earlier with the Hunley, they, there really was a documentary where somebody did sloppy research and they DNA tested, they dug up to get a reference sample and then they tested against a step relative. No, <sighs> yeah, I was like, no, you, you needed to figure that out before you disinterred somebody. Right. You know, that, to me, it's it's acceptable to do it for historical purposes, but you need to make sure you've got it right. And that's that's the way I am with my army cases. I'm sort of obsessive about them because I, if I get something wrong, they may not be identified. You know, right. so I'm obsessive about solving them, <clears throat> and I'm obsessive about getting them right. You know. Well, I, I again, being the child of a veteran. And, you know, being, you know, following what you've done for so many years, thanks what you do all the time. It's amazing, Megan. And continue to do it. Never retire from it. <laughs> because, you know, and, and maybe there'll come a day that what you do won't be necessary because, you know, that's that maybe we won't have wars and maybe we don't have veterans that are unidentified or go missing but as you said what over 80,000 missing yeah, still 80,000 counted for yeah it's unfortunate and you think yeah. that a lot of them still have family that are you know around maybe even be grandchildren or great-grandchildren or great-nephews mm -hmm. nieces I mean it's still in resident memory you know World War II and and for some people, even, you know, new people from World War One and the stories passed down the dad never came home. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so uh, I, I'm not a vet to salute you, but I salute <laughs> you. And, uh, uh, I, I really, really appreciate having you on the show. I, and I, and I, you know, I said to myself to Terry, I said, we like, really need to have Megan on the show with Pearl Harbor coming up. And with everything you do for veterans, I'm like, oh, I should have got it for Veterans Day. So this is a happy medium. 
and <laughs> I'm really, really, really pleased. And Terry, do you have any questions? I've been kind of going on <laughs> for the whole time. And Terry, you've been in the background. Honestly, uh, I just like to listen because the, the military has never been like my cup of tea. Like it's not anything I really do a lot of research into. So I know that that was more... But, you know, I do go and I look for my soldiers and stuff like that, but I've never done like really in-depth stuff with them. So I just kind of like to listen. And honestly, the first time I heard Megan speak, she spoke about, it was a DNA case. And she, she said to me, she says, I've never given this lecture before. So maybe wait. And I, and I was like, oh no, I can't. And it was at NGS in <laughs> Vegas and it was Fan outstanding. Girl. It was outstanding. I was like, just floored. Yeah. So uh, thank you. Thank you. I honestly, like if she's ever in your area speaking, you definitely need to go hear her. As I told her before you got on, David, I, all my societies in the area, I always ask, can you just bring Megan in? I hit 43 states and half a dozen countries so far. So that's awesome. Well, that means you can't retire anytime soon. <laughs> I'm not planning on it. I'm not planning Good. on it. No, no, I still have way too many mysteries to solve. <laughs> awesome. That's wonderful. And that is the truth about genealogy and history. And yeah, I, yeah. I think that if it was ever all done, what would we end up taking up as a hobby? No, I mean, I no, suppose I could learn mountain climbing or something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'll stick to genealogy. Having my two feet firmly planted on the ground is probably safer mm. even though i've fallen in some ditches at cemeteries but that's a story for another episode <laughs> well on behalf of myself and i'm sure also with terry megan thank you for being our guest and again thank you so much for what you do and uh, everyone if you have a veteran out there that you have in your family and give them an extra hug the idea that so many of them never came home is riveting when you hear the number over 80,000, how many families that were affected with no closure. But thanks to Megan, you know, all the work that she's done has really brought closure from many families and probably many more to come. So we are virtually yours signing off from this episode and stay tuned for our next time that we come on and give you a different way of looking at the past. Thank you so much. For those of you watching on YouTube, remember you can also find us on the audio podcast of your choice. Currently, we can be found on Anchor, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. And for those of you listening on audio, remember you can always find the full video recording on our YouTube channel. And if you like this episode, please feel free to leave a comment on the website or on YouTube. As always, you can find us at virtualhistorians.com. You can email us at info at virtualhistorians.com. And we ask that you please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you. <laughs>